This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to New Books in Political Science, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Lemis Abdelalti from the Maxwell School of Syracuse University. Today, I'll be talking to Peter Krauss and Ora Sekely about their co-edited book. The book is titled Stories from the Field, A Guide to Navigating Fieldwork in Political Science, and it was published by Columbia University Press in 2020. Instead of giving you a step-by-step guide or checklists for doing fieldwork, this book lets you read about the actual challenges faced by real scholars in the field. These are the previously untold stories behind the articles and books that have shaped or will shape our discipline. Peter and Aura, welcome to the show. Great to be here. Thanks so much for having us, Lemis. Yeah, thank you for inviting us, Lemis. Wonderful. So I wonder if you could begin the interview by just telling us a little bit about yourselves. Peter, maybe we'll start with you. Sure. So I'm an associate professor of political science at Boston College and a researcher affiliate in the MIT Security Studies program. Um, I do a lot of field work in the Middle East. My first book, uh, Rebel Power, Why National Movements Compete, Fight, and Win, is about why various organizations try to gain new nation states, but why they also compete with each other for leadership. Um, And I do a lot of work also on coercion. uh, And then, of course, this great co-edited volume that I worked on with Aura recently. So doing a lot more teaching and research on field work these days. And Aura? Uh, I am Associate Professor of Political Science at Clark University, and I am also currently the Director of the Program in Peace and Conflict Studies. Uh, I have done field research all across the Middle East at one point or another, um, mostly focused on the foreign and domestic policies of non-state military actors. My first book focused on the relative effectiveness of uh, a whole range of non-state actors uh, in the Lebanese and Palestinian contexts. And I've also more recently done work on the Kurdish women's movement. And I'm currently working on a book about Syria. Wonderful. Um, Thank you both for joining us today. So I want to just start by asking you, what gave you the idea for this book, Stories from the Field? So it goes back a couple of years ago, Or and I are both part of the Northeast Middle East Politics Working Group. And, you know, it's one of these kind of regional workshops where people come in and present their research, kind of their works in progress on various papers or book manuscripts. And it's a really, you know, great community. It, it was started maybe a decade, a little bit, decade and a half ago. And it's a great supportive community where people present their work, get feedback. But it was actually not during the regular sessions when people were presenting their formal work. It was kind of these discussions we were having in between about field research we'd done in the region in the Middle East and, you know, various stories about things that had happened and lessons we had learned. And it kind of made me think about that old phrase, you know, there's never nothing going on. And I guess that happens actually even at academic conferences. And Ora and I were sitting there and saying, you know, 
these conversations are things that are so valuable in terms of how we learn from each other and pass along knowledge, but they're not the types of things that people normally publish. And certainly they don't publish it in that kind of storytelling way. And so we said, you know, this should be a book, like we should make this a book. And so it started with us, you know, inviting a couple of the people who were part of that initial conversation. But very quickly, we realized, look, we're both in the Middle East politics field. We don't want this just to be a Middle East book. So we went, you know, very far to make sure we had people who are representing all different regions of the world, both in terms of where they do their field research and, you know, where they're coming from, uh, the types of topics they work on, etc. And again, the purpose was to have this kind of bottom up methods book that focused on storytelling. Although I think it, it is probably worth noting that we did end up with I want to say four separate chapters about Lebanon <laughs> in in part, I think, because when you, you know, when you ask sort of like a random sampling of scholars of the Middle East, uh, what they work on, you're maybe going to end up with a certain level of clustering around a certain, a certain country almost, almost by accident. That is certainly understandable. Um, so uh, I, I wonder if you could talk just a little bit more about the sort of collection of contributors that you've put together in this book. So you have, I think, 40 or so um, different authors. So tell us a little bit more about how you selected this group, you know, where it is that they work, what kinds of topics they work on, et cetera. Sure. So I, I think we took a couple of different approaches uh, to figuring out who we wanted to include. So um, first, part of, part of this was we came up with kind of like a dream list of whose research backstories do we really want to hear, right? Like, what are some of our favorite books? What's some of the work where we really are just like personally curious about what went into writing some of these books? Um, we also uh, made a really concerted effort to ensure that there was a real diversity of voices in the volume. So that included reaching out to people um, at different stages in their careers. So, you know, everyone from people who were very senior, who are you know, much more established, who maybe had you know, written books that we'd read and loved to people who were, you know, at the beginning of their careers, who were doing really interesting, really exciting work um, and, and hadn't quite yet published it. We also uh, were really committed to providing a range of voices in terms of like people's personal backgrounds. So, um, you know, not only people's countries of citizenship, but also where they were in terms of their university affiliation, um, in terms of like race and gender and ethnic background and, um, you know, all the stuff that goes into to creating a real plurality of voices and perspectives, because that was also really important to us. And the other thing that we wanted to be sure to do was to not just ask our friends, um, which I think can can be something that happens really naturally when you're putting together a big project like this. But we also, I think, had a couple of conversations where we were like, okay, what, you know, where, A, where are some of the holes? And B, um, who are some folks that we don't know personally that we, whose work we really admire, who would kind of like to have involved in all of this. So there were, there were a lot of different questions that we asked ourselves. The other thing I will say is, um, as you will know from having read the book, it's 42 chapters, 44 contributors. And I think part of how we ended up that way was we had this like very long list of people that we were interested in asking, and we didn't actually think we would get as much participation as we did, but actually people were very enthusiastic. So we, you know, we ended up with this enormous range of participants in part because most people we asked said yes. 
Yeah, I mean, I think that we only had a couple people who turned us down. And, you know, if there's an unfortunate part of it, we had many other people we were really sure were going to ask to be part of the book that we couldn't because so many people were interested in telling these stories. But I think Aura does a great job describing, you know, how we brought people in. And I would just add a couple of other things. One is we also, I think, wanted to make sure this wasn't just a book of, hey, Americans doing research kind of elsewhere, right? There's a lot of, you know, history of, you know, some of the problematic aspects of field research. And so we wanted to make sure, number one, we had people who were Americans doing field work in America in their communities. And we have that. We had people who are not Americans doing field work in America. And again, all kind of combinations of those things. So that was another key part of how we thought about who we asked. And then also, I think, as Aura said, you know, people from different backgrounds, but also different topics, right? So Aura and I both focus a lot on political violence, social movements, but we wanted to make sure we had people who worked on, you know, economic issues, on cultural issues, on all these types of things, as well as methodological pluralism, which I think is very important to us. You know, this is not a methods book where Or and I are like, hey, this is how we do research and this is the right way. Instead, it's kind of like, hey, you know, we do interviews, we do archival work, but other people do field experiments, other people do surveys, other people do ethnography and participant observation. And we wanted this book to encapsulate all of those approaches. So we tried to reach out and find people who we thought were doing interesting research with different approaches, different topics, different regions. And then to be honest, and maybe we'll talk more about this, we didn't give them a great deal of instruction. Basically, what we said to them was, we want to hear one of your most interesting stories from your field research that was instructional for you. And then, you know, on kind of one of four big themes on ethics, on logistics, on, you know, these types of things. And that was kind of the extent of our instructions. Now, we had a little back and forth once people started to write, but, you know, we wanted this to really be this bottom-up methods book whereby, you know, it wasn't something that was pre-planned. Okay, we want a chapter on this. We want a chapter on that. And, you know, of course, there's a risk there, right, which is people could write all over the place on things that didn't really cohere. Um, but I think ultimately we got something that did cohere pretty well and we got a great deal of diversity in the approaches that we might not have gotten if we did kind of more of a top-down approach. So I think we're really proud of that. I think you're, you're right to be proud. Um, and the fact that you include such a diverse group of scholars here kind of also ensures that readers are getting access to a wide range of experiences and a wide range of advice. And in fact, sometimes some of your contributors don't always agree with each other, right, which I think is useful to see as well. I also will hasten to reassure listeners that even though there's a large number of chapters, these are actually quite short contributions uh, by each author. And because they're telling stories, they're extremely readable, right? They're very enjoyable to read. This is not, you know, one of those dry methods books um, that, we're, that we're all used to. Um, so uh, since there are a, a, you know, a very large number of contributions here, I thought that we could talk about some of the themes that come out um, in many of these chapters. One of the themes that comes out across many of the contributions is you know, the fact that fieldwork is inherently unpredictable, um, that therefore it's really important that researchers be flexible and creative. Um, can you tell us about how some of the contributions in the book speak to this theme? Sure. Uh- and in fact, you know, Peter Peter mentioned that you know we weren't totally sure how everything was going to like cohere, whether we were going to get uh, like sort of like clear themes. But actually, that was one of the very clearest themes that emerged. Um, we had a, a large number of of contributions where people were talking about having to like readjust their project on the fly, either because something really unexpected happened. Um, uh, you know, in, in the place where they were doing research, or because they learned something new, which in some ways is 
sort of the the whole point of field research, right? That like you don't necessarily know what you don't know when you go into the field. And the idea is that you're going to expose yourself to new ideas and ideally um, learn something that you you didn't know you had the chance to to learn. So that, you know, that comes up in um, Daniel Posner's chapter, that comes up in Nadia Haj's chapter, um, where just, you know, by virtue of kind of like dropping yourself into a new environment, that's when you really have the chance to learn what the question is that you actually want to be asking. So it's not just about um, having the flexibility to adjust when things go wrong. It's also having the flexibility to adjust your thinking when you realize like, oh, actually the question that I thought I was investigating is much less interesting than this other question, which I didn't even know was was a thing, um, which I think is something that a lot of us have experienced in our research. And I also think speaks to one of the things we're really hoping to accomplish with this book which is to provide both a resource and maybe some reassurance uh, to graduate students who are, who are doing field work for the first time. Like, look, this is normal. Your dissertation proposal uh, is not like a binding legal document. Uh, you may learn things in the field that cause you to readjust your thinking. And that's that's not only okay, it's actually kind of the point of doing field work. So um, uh, obviously, it's going to be difficult to do justice to sort of the wealth of information that's uh, contained in all, across all of the various chapters. But you know, can you give us some specific examples um, of contributions that deal with this theme of unpredictability and the need for flexibility and creativity in the field? Sure. I mean, I think Aura, you know, ticked off a couple. So you know, Nadia Haj talking about some of her great research, looking at kind of uh, property rights among Palestinian uh, refugees. Uh, I think that that was really good because she went in thinking about, okay, I've got this pre-planned question. I've got this way that I'm going to look at my research. And then all of a sudden she realized in the course of her interviews, you know, oh, there's this actually other key issue that I wasn't considering that actually should be the focus of what I'm doing. And again, that was a common theme with Daniel Posner when he was going to do uh, field research um, in, I believe, West Africa, he was, you know, focusing on, again, a question that turned out not to be the question that was of interest to the people here in the community he was studying. And so he shifted his research, similar stuff, not just with interviews, Mark Trachtenberg wrote a chapter called Stumbling Around in the Archives, where, you know, he's working on, I believe, you know, reparations and some of the stuff after World War One, and to what extent, you know, the British versus the French were actually kind of the hardcore people turning the screws on the Germans to pay back money for their responsibility for the war. And again, he went into it, kind of thinking he had a certain question or that there was a certain conventional wisdom about what had happened and then actually found that was not the case. Uh, Kristen Mikulich doing a kind of field experiment where she was giving certain people, you know, access to radios versus, you know, flashlights. And then again, in the middle of it, I believe there was maybe a civil war that erupted. It was a military coup. A military coup. And so again, had to adjust, you know, not only just the, the potentially the question, but also the approach of how she did her work. So again, there is on the one hand, this common theme of having to adjust. And I think that one of the things you see for a lot of our, our authors is that maybe they went into the field, you know, kind of being more of this positivist who was going in with a preset question, preset, you know, method, and then they were just going to gather some data. And then at the end, they become more interpretivist in some sense of saying, well, actually, I'm here and I'm figuring out more what matters to this community and how they see the world and what question I should be asking. So they kind of, you know, go back in some ways earlier in their process, but I think they come out much better as scholars and their projects are much better because of it. And so that's a common theme across many of those chapters, even beyond just those four I mentioned. 
Um, that's very helpful. So another cross-cutting theme has to do with the importance of interpersonal dynamics. Um, can you maybe describe how your contributors shed light on this theme? Sure. So one of the chapters that I think does this especially well is um, Zoe Marx's chapter about learning to cook while conducting interviews it, with with the wives of rebel commanders in Sierra Leone. Um, because she, she describes not only you know what this looked like for her research process, but also you know how it sort of shaped her her connection to her field site over time. Um, she also includes in the book a recipe for uh, ground nut stew. So for for any of your listeners who also have a side interest in cooking, um, this is an additional benefit of this book. Yeah, and I would add two others. Um, one is Ian Lustig's chapter, which is perhaps not coincidentally put as the first one, and Zoe's as the second because we loved both of them so much. But Ian's chapter about fieldwork and emotions, which again is something that not that many people kind of put as a point of study, and then they often don't bring up. But obviously, we're all human beings; we all have emotions, especially when we're in potentially a, a an environment that's not our hometown or otherwise, which is the case for a number of people doing field research. You know, we're talking sometimes about challenging issues. We're interacting with people who are facing a lot of personal challenges themselves. So, you know, there's emotional aspects to it. And I think Ian told us that um, he hadn't actually even told some of these stories kind of publicly before to his students, but they were really searing experiences where, you know, he had been on a beach interacting um, with some, you know, Arab Israelis or Palestinians and, you know, becoming friends with them, et cetera. And then, you know, as he's getting ready to leave, you have uh, kind of the Israeli lifeguard being like, you know, you need to like not take a ride from these people. It's dangerous, et cetera. And like the kind of conflict he had internally about what he should be doing in that. It's just a fascinating story about someone who, again, has become one of the most prominent scholars in our field on Israeli-Palestinian politics. And yet, you know, in some ways, these formative experiences of that, of interacting with some Israeli settlers, of, you know, driving in a, a service through the West Bank with some, you know, Palestinian men and like the experiences and the impact this had on his emotional, you know, kind of being at the time, I thought was just fascinating. And the other thing about it is that one of the things we wanted to do in this book is, again, like you want to almost hear the person's voice in terms of how they're writing, like like telling a story, not just kind of like, here's my question, here's my method section, here's my discussion. And I think that that chapter just does it so well. It's really just searing. And I'd also add Amani Jamal's chapter. Um, she's writing about building personal networks and something that, again, maybe is lost sometimes, especially today with graduate students when they have the pressures of like publish or perish, publish, 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 you know, like to even get an interview these days, you probably have to have one or two or three, you know, peer reviewed articles. And that creates incentives whereby you just have to get stuff done quickly. But the challenge is, you know, being a good uh, field researcher and just scholar in general, and Amani's right at the top, a lot of it is building those personal connections and networks with, you know, academics who are in the country that you're working in, with people in the government, with, you know, just private citizens, and that that matters not only for understanding the context of what you're working on, but also generationally, you know, down the line, when you go to a place or go to your field site, it's hopefully a place you're going to go back to throughout your career. And so building up those relationships is really important. Uh, and the final one I say, I know I just said too, but you know, Wendy Perlman's chapter on field being, right? Which Or and I love, and just as a fantastic one, talking about spending non-instrumental time in a place and again, kind of building up these personal connections and how that can be such a boon to, you know, just being a scholar and someone who's understanding a society and a context later on. I thought those were all great examples. I agree. They're all fantastic examples. And I actually want to ask you a follow-up question uh, related to Amani Jamel's uh, 
uh, contribution there. Um, so one of the things that uh, she discusses in her chapter is a concern about the direction that our discipline is moving in, right? And she juxtaposes um, work that treats the field as a laboratory uh, that's focused on data acquisition as opposed to field work. Now, I wondered if you could maybe reflect a little bit uh, on this tension that she identifies and, you know, uh, whether you, sh- you um, share her concerns uh, about sort of our trends in our discipline. I think that this, this question that Amani poses in her chapter uh, was certainly an important question when she wrote this chapter and when this book came out. And now, uh, as we enter the third year of the COVID-19 pandemic and, uh, you know, yet another cohort of graduate students uh, has to sort out what their research is going to look like if they can't go off and do field work or, or what field work might look like, that question starts to feel even more important, Right. Um, what does our discipline look like? What does field research look like when for logistical reasons, for you know, reasons of like health and social responsibility and like all the reasons why you might not be able to do field work, when you can't go engage in that kind of extended um, non-instrumental time that Wendy talks about in her chapter that can help build up those networks, which Amani Jamal points to as being so important. Um and I, I don't know that I have a good answer for that. I do think that for many of the people, one one sort of unspoken theme, I think, in this volume and also just, you know, in like political science more generally, is that I think for the most part, most of us get into political science as a discipline. Um, and certainly, you know, for folks who like focus on a particular part of the world, because we kind of like it, because we like the countries that we study, because we enjoy spending time in uh, certain communities, whether that's, you know, like our own neighborhood or whether it's somewhere on the other side of the world, that I think many of us, you know, are drawn to certain questions or are drawn to studying certain areas, regions, neighborhoods, whatever, out of a sense of like personal connection and personal affinity, because we have friends or family or, you know, some other kind of personal connection uh, that makes us want to understand something that's happening in a certain part of the world and maybe like gives us a sense of responsibility or compassion or, you know, whatever drives us to try and produce research that in some way is going to be positive or productive for the people that we're studying. And that looks different for different kinds of methodologies. And I think there are ways in which experimental methods can make that kind of contribution. There are ways in which sort of like extended ethnography can make that kind of connection, but not being able to, for very good reasons, uh, you know, go spend that time and develop those personal relationships and develop that sense of connection to a part of the world that, you know, maybe out of reach, literally, I think that's really hard. And I think that's going to be really hard for a couple of years worth of, of grad students and junior scholars, undergraduates who are missing out on study abroad experiences. Although I do, I do have a couple of students doing study abroad this year, and I'm really proud of them for finding ways to make it work. But, um, that's something I've been thinking a lot about recently, and it, and I, I don't know that I have a good answer. 
Just to add to that, um, you know, I think it's important to because I think the way you juxtapose it of kind of, you know, the field as a laboratory and, and some of the challenges with that. Yeah, I think that there are a lot of, you know, concerning things we have to think about, right? Like, I think the stereotype would be someone who kind of parachutes in, parachutes out. I think Rich Nielsen in one, our, one of our podcast episodes called it, you know, smash and grab field work. And I think, the, you know, rightfully so, that type of approach has a bad reputation. Um, but I don't think that that's unique in any way to any one method, right? You can do a really shallow interview uh, with someone where, you know, you don't learn their native language, that you're asking really insensitive questions in ways that are leading and then, you know, get out of there and just say, oh, I did an interview with so-and-so and that was a big deal. And at the same time, one could do a field experiment that was planned over years with partners from the area in which you're doing research that's going to have findings that serve the local community. And it's like, hey, that's, that's a great model. So I don't think it's, you know, unique to any one uh, approach or method. But what I do think Amani is bringing up, which is really important, is just the challenges of doing and thinking about field research over the long term, right? So I don't think, again, like people have families and young children, things like that. So there are times I think for everybody, like in grad school, it's like, oh, I've got all this time. I can go live somewhere for a year or two. And then life hits you 10 years later. And it's like, okay, I cannot just go live for a year and a half somewhere unless, you know, maybe my spouse or partner can come with me. And so people's length of time they spend something can be shortened. But I think what Amani is saying is, if you're able at some point in time to put in that longer period of time to build those connections, to build that network, to, you know, somewhat work off of your advisor's network and kind of contribute to that, that this is a collective enterprise, that what you put into it matters beyond just what your publication is. And I understand, and, you know, I, I face it too, I'm you know now a tenured faculty member, but I still have, a, you know, incentives to publish and whatnot. Like there is incentive, just get stuff done, just get the bare minimum of what you need and kind of get it out there. But I think what she's kind of saying is thinking over the longer term, for yourself as a scholar, for your grad students, for the people around you, the way you act in your field work and how long you put into it and what you put into developing those relationships, like it matters, it will pay off. And you personally are benefiting from the groundwork that other people have laid before you in that way. Um, again, that's something that came up for me personally when I, I did some of my field work in Northern Ireland and just thinking about this whole concept of, quote, like spoiling the field if you kind of do it in a way that hurts not just your reputation, but that of your university or other researchers. You know, you have to think collectively about this stuff. And I think Amani did a good job bringing up those issues. Thank you. I appreciate both of your reflections on that. Um, now, a third theme in many of the contributions has to do with the researcher's own identity. And Peter, you actually have a chapter that speaks uh, directly to this theme. Um, can you tell us about your chapter in the book? Sure. Um, and I'll have to say going into it, you know, I'm someone who's always been cognizant of the role of identity. And, you know, I teach intro to international relations and I teach other classes where we talk about, you know, ethnic politics and identity for states, for individuals. So it's something I'm cognizant of, but I'll just be honest as a background to our listeners, like it's not often the focus of my of my work and my research. So to some extent, this chapter is one of the first times I kind of talked about how this stuff has had an impact on my work, but I, I think it has been instructive for me because, you know, when I set off to do field research for my first book, this book, Rebel Power, um, I focused initially on the Zionist movement and the Palestinian national movement. So the focus of the book is on these four, you know, four different national movements who had varying degrees of success at getting states, right? So the Zionist movement struggled for decades, eventually got the state of Israel. Algerian national movement struggled for decades or even longer against the French, eventually got Algeria. But then you have kind of a mixed bag of the Irish where they got the Irish Free State and eventually the Republic, but still Northern Ireland's not part of the Irish Republic. And then you have the Palestinians who to this day don't have a real state of their own. And so my book is basically setting out to understand, you know, what explains that variation in outcome, but also 
what explains the variation in the strategies those movements use um, and how they kind of interact with organizations and people inside the movement. So the way my identity came up is that I did, you know, field research for each of those movements in a variety of countries, you know, for the Palestinians in a variety of countries, not just in the West Bank, but also in countries with various refugee populations in the surrounding areas. Um, for the Irish, I was based in Belfast. I was based in Dublin. For Algeria, I was obviously based in, in Algeria and Algiers and, and elsewhere quite a bit. My identity came up just in terms of how people interacted with me, right? As you can, well, I guess the listeners can't see, but as you can see now on our Zencaster feed, you know, I'm kind of like this taller white guy with a crew cut. And, um, you know, my last name is kind of a Jewish last name, even though I'm not Jewish. And so how I'm seen, you know, had a big impact there. Like when many Israelis are like, Krauss is a Jewish name, right? And, you know, and then I'm like, no, actually it's not. Um, and so it's not that all of a sudden people wouldn't talk to me, but I wasn't kind of part of the tribe. And so that might have had some impact. Uh, with the Palestinians, of course, I look like, and people would ask me like, and it's like, no, I'm, I'm not a member of the CIA. I'm not a member of Shin Bet. But you know, there's that concern in question. That's a real thing, right? And so I had to take that into consideration in terms of how I approach people and what my legitimacy was as a researcher and what the types of questions I'm asking them and, you know, being careful with my data and all of those types of things. But, you know, one of the other big things is that when I went to Northern Ireland to Belfast, it's like, I am Irish American. I do have family from Ireland. And it was just amazing to me how quickly I was kind of welcomed and, you know, happily welcomed into some of those communities I was interviewing and how open people were to me. Something that took, you know, six months or more uh, with Palestinian communities or others in terms of getting that degree of welcome. And again, I, I have to say, it's not probably just that my research in Belfast was the last of those four. It's also probably because of who I am and what I look like and what my family story is and all those types of things. So yeah, I think identity played a role there in terms of how I was perceived, in terms of how people talk to me. And I think that that doesn't, you know, that's not fully limiting in the sense of at the end of the day, I think I was still able to do good quality interviews in each of those contexts and get people to talk to me about the types of things I was interested in and certainly learn their different perspectives on stuff. But it did have an impact. And I think that I talk about that in my chapter and Zahan talks about that in his chapter uh, as someone who's, you know, ethnically Chinese, but was doing, you know, field research um, with the Uyghurs and you know, some other places and kind of how he was perceived. And so I think that that's also something that comes out. You know, Melissa Nobles talks about studying a quote unquote racial democracy in Brazil uh, as a black American and kind of having the story of what Brazilians say about how they deal with people of different races, ethnicities, but then how she actually experienced it was quite different. So I think that's also a theme that comes in throughout the book. And obviously in the United States and around the world today, I think there's a renewed focus on this stuff, not just in the broader community, but in our field. And I think that comes out in the book. And I'll say again, it was something that for me was probably not something I thought about as much earlier in my career, but certainly when I started to do field research, I thought about it a lot and I had to, but ultimately it was a beneficial thing for me to understand more about you know, people's lived experiences and the types of stuff I was studying. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. It's certainly, I think that uh, your chapter and the various chapters that deal with this theme got me thinking about the ways that my own identity has shaped my fieldwork experiences as well. Um, but I want to move on to uh, another theme um, 
that comes up in many of the chapters, and that's the theme of ethical dilemmas. And one of the things that I appreciated in the book is how various authors talk about how they've grappled with ethical challenges and how, in some cases, uh, institutional review board requirements um, can be sort of the floor rather than the ceiling, as it were, right? Um, so I want to go to you, or and ask you about um, your chapter. Um, can you tell us the story of being filmed at a Hezbollah event <laughs> and what lessons you drew from that? Sure. So uh, in the winter of 2009, I was in Beirut doing research for my doctoral dissertation, uh, which was on the sort of internal policy making decisions of various uh, political and militant groups in the Lebanese and, and also later Palestinian context. So as part of this, I was like desperate to get some kind of access to Hezbollah's community outreach mechanism, which um, was not super easy, actually. Hezbollah has an extremely well-developed media relations office where, you know, if you want to like go do research on Hezbollah, you have to fill out like an application to this day. There's like a copy of my passport in their filing cabinet somewhere in Beirut. Although I will say that media relations office was extremely comfortable. It was air conditioned. They gave me a cold Coke to drink and it was a non-smoking space which was extremely comfortable. Uh, but anyway, so I was like really frustrated that I was having a hard time getting access. Nobody would give me, an, to this day, I've never gotten like a full on the record interview with you know any party officials. But I had a good friend who was a journalist uh, who worked for a major outlet in Lebanon. And she was invited to cover this rally that Hezbollah was holding uh, in one of their event spaces, which is this like big warehouse in Beirut southern suburbs, uh, which are known colloquially as Dahia. Um, and she arranged for me to also get cleared to go with her to go see this rally. And I was like super excited about this because I've been having a really hard time getting access to these events. So um, we get there and we get seats in the press pen, which is like this area right in the middle of the space. Uh, we had a great view. There was like a clear view of the stage. You know, Hezbollah has like a choir and a band and they're like super high production values. And it was fascinating. Like it answered all of these questions that I had about their community outreach mechanism. And I also felt like fairly comfortable with my positioning of myself at this rally, right? Like I'm in the press pen surrounded by other journalists. Uh, I felt like I had a very clear um, role, I guess. Like I was very, it was very clear to me that, like, oh yes, this is like a good way for me to gain access to this kind of event. Um, but as often happens with the media, about halfway through this event, which was not short, this was like you know three plus hours. Most of the TV crews had like gotten whatever shot they needed, and so they all left, and people started coming in to like take the seats around us. So eventually, we're just like sitting in the audience at Hezbollah rally, and my friend and I. Uh, I guess because Hezbollah's TV station was still there and still filming, um, ended up on Al Manar the next day, which is Hezbollah's satellite news station, uh, in some of the footage of this rally. And there's these two like American women sitting surrounded by Hezbollah members uh, who were there at the rally as participants uh, on the news, which was mostly funny. Um, you know, like her, her friends kind of gave her a hard time about it. Or her work colleagues gave her a hard time about it, but like, it was basically funny. And this was not something that I was actually particularly concerned about, but it was kind of a weird feeling, right? Like what, 
what does this look like to people that I might want to interview later? Am I in some way being deceptive? Are people going to think, oh, well, she's, you know, she's sympathetic to the organization, so I can tell her things I might not tell her otherwise. And the reason why I included this story in the book is that I think it speaks to this larger question of how do we represent ourselves to the people that we're interviewing? How do we make sure that they understand in what capacity they are speaking to us? What does it mean to ask somebody questions as a researcher? And how do we make sure that people have an accurate understanding of like how their words are going to be used? Right? This is the whole point of the informed consent process, which our IRBs ask us to go through. But also, how do we make sure that we are sort of maintaining appropriate boundaries and that people are talking to us as researchers and don't slip into talking to us the way they would talk to a friend or the way that they might talk to a therapist or right? like how, how do you make sure that you're being respectful uh, at all points in the research process of, of, I guess, like the appropriate relationship between a researcher and their interview participant, um, which is a long answer to your question. Okay, so yeah, I thought that was really well said, Aura. Um, if I could add a little bit, I would say this. You know, I talked about some of my kind of personal identity for my chapter, but there was also kind of an institutional identity, which is really important. Um, when I was in Belfast, walking on the Falls Road, going to do some interviews with some members of Sinn Féin, uh, I saw spray painted there this thing, Boston College Touts. And if you don't know what a tout is, it's basically an informant. It's not a positive thing to be called. And it goes to this, this project that happened about a decade before I got to BC, whereby some journalists journalists who were affiliated with BC were trying to create this oral history archive where they interviewed former members of the IRA and the UVF, these kind of, you know, Republican and loyalist militias in the Troubles in Northern Ireland. And the idea was they were going to release these tapes when the people died. Um, and they did that after a couple of them died. The problem was many of the other people had not died. And so the courts in Northern Ireland were subpoenaing the records. They were arresting Jerry Adams and it became honestly an infamous episode that many people will probably study about some of the problems when you do field work the wrong way and you make promises you can't keep and all these things about uh, confidentiality, et cetera. So anyway, I'm there as an assistant professor from Boston College, kind of starting out my career and saying to myself, hmm, like, I'm also a research affiliate at MIT. Maybe I could just say I'm from MIT. But I, you know, very quickly in my mind was like, no, I'm not going to do that. I need to obviously be honest about where I'm coming from and who I am. It's potentially a security risk to these people to talk to me for re reputation or otherwise. So they need to know what they're getting into in terms of informed consent. But also this concept of kind of spoiling the field and the ethical concerns about that, which is that episode, you know, made it harder for me to do field work there. But instead of just kind of saying, okay, I'll try to take the easy way out. I also wanted to say, all right, maybe I can, you know, have my small contribution to make it better to show the people that I'm interviewing. Look, here's who I am. Here's the work I'm doing. I want to tell the story of your national movement, the internal struggles it had, how you perceive things. And at the end of the day, I was able to convince pretty much everyone I reached out to to talk to me, some anonymously, but some not. And I hope that the more and more BC and affiliate researchers that go over there are able to help kind of repair that relationship because Boston College has a great relationship with the Irish people. And I think that that's important. Now, something I'll add to that more broadly about ethics is that this was a key part of our book from the outset. I think that, again, if you look at the title of our book, Stories from the Field, you know it's about lived experience and storytelling. That's informal. And that's why it's accessible to undergrads, to grad students. When I teach with it, it really resonates with them. But the challenge is someone could look at that and be like, oh, it's informal. It's not taking it seriously. And it's not being ethically conscientious. And you know that couldn't be further from the truth in terms of what we try to do with this book. Um, 
we tried to identify people who do great research. And to be clear, I personally don't agree with every single thing in the book. I'm sure there's people who don't agree with everything I wrote in my chapter, but that's the nature of doing a bottom-up methods book, right? Is that we wanted this book to represent the type of work that's being done at a high level and have a conversation with people of different approaches. And a great example of that is uh, the chapters from Erica Chenoweth and Zachariah Mampoli. So they both wrote to varying degrees about the ethics of doing work on you know, political violence and things of this nature. Before Erica, uh, they talk about the evolution that they've had in the course of their career, where basically uh, they started out you know, studying political violence. Then at the same time, they started to study nonviolence, and there were some issues about uh, where they had gotten uh, funding from. And so at the end of the chapter, Erica talks about how she has this kind of code of ethics and questions that they ask about um, in terms of, you know, why are you doing the research and who's your audience that you care about and who are you trying to serve? And I think that that's just a great thing for anyone who's starting out to think about why are you doing research? How are you doing it? What's the purpose of it? Now, Zachariah's chapter is not in opposition to Erica's by any means, uh, but Zachariah has this great chapter called The Field is Everywhere. And what he's doing there is he's saying, basically, look, number one, the field is not some foreign exotic places maybe stereotypically people thought about, it, especially in, in prior generations. But also he talks a lot about how uh, the field that I'm part of, you know, political violence, terrorism, et cetera, how a lot of the funding for some folks there comes from the government, often the U.S. government. And what can that do ethically to the way people ask questions, to what communities they're serving, to the way they see the world? And I think that that led to a lot of good conversations. We actually had a podcast episode, Or and I, with Zachariah and Erica, and we started to hash out and discuss some of this stuff. And we all don't perfectly agree on all of those points, but I think that there is some consensus and commonality about this, about how to do research conscientiously, about these types of considerations of where you're taking money from, who you're serving as a community, about being open about this stuff. And so I think that that's what the nature and the model we wanted for this book. It wasn't, okay, we have this viewpoint. We just want to sign up people who are in lockstep with us there. Instead, it was, hey, here are people doing great work on this stuff that we're interested in. Let's get some different viewpoints. Let's start the conversation. And I think there's a lot of benefit to that. I'm glad you mentioned uh, those uh, particular uh, chapters there because I, um, you know, I, I also found uh, Zachariah uh, Mampoli's uh, chapter alongside other contributions to be really pushing uh, the idea that, you know, there, there are various ethical challenges that may not necessarily have easy or obvious answers, but it's still important for us to, to pose those questions and to grapple with them nonetheless. Or I think you wanted to say something um, related to this note as well. Yeah, just that, you know, one thing that I really appreciated about this book as a whole and about the, the contributions of all of our collaborators or of all of our contributors was their willingness to be really, I don't know, to like really dig into some really hard stuff, um, to, to be in some cases very vulnerable about things that were really hard for them, about the like questions that were really complicated and that they had a hard time negotiating and to recognize that um, that sometimes it's a process to arrive at the right answer, um, which is something I, yeah, which I just, I really appreciate it. Um, so questions of, you know, not just how do we protect the identities of our research participants, which is obviously really important, but also um, what do you do when you're interviewing somebody who you know has maybe done some pretty bad stuff? Right. Like, what do we owe? So this is something Jessica Stern engages with. Right. Like, what do we owe um, 
interview participants who may also be war criminals. Or, um, you know, in the case of Carla Abdo-Katsifis' chapter, like how do you balance the need to protect your own safety with your obligations to your research participants? Uh, in her case, these were people who were, um, you know, human traffickers in Lebanon. So, you know, some of these questions are are really thorny and really difficult or questions like, you know, what are the ethical challenges that come with accepting certain kinds of research funding? Um, and I, you know, I don't think either of us started this project thinking that we were going to get like a very um, surfacey book. <laughs> like I think we like were really hoping that we'd be able to dig into some of the, the bigger questions around field research and political science. But uh, I was really gratified and really impressed with um I don't know, with like how forthcoming people were with the things that had been really important to them, but also really challenging to them uh, about their own research. Um, and that's something that has given me a lot to think about and that I've really appreciated as I think about, you know, my own current research projects and future projects. And I hope that it's useful for other people as well. Thank you for that. So on that note, obviously, you're both experienced and thoughtful field researchers. So I'm wondering, you know, what is it that you learned about field research from putting together this book? You know, did editing the book raise any new issues for you or invite you to think from a different perspective from the one that you previously held? Yeah, definitely for me. I mean, again, to give a couple examples. First off, a chapter that Orr and I both loved, uh, Amelia Hoover Green's chapter on, you know, fieldwork for the fieldwork hater. I'm someone who certainly has spent time, like everybody has, you know, in my uh, apartment or otherwise, like tearing my hair out about, oh my gosh, like people will not return my phone calls or, oh, like I just can't get access to the documents I want or whatever. But why is I, this so hard? Right. But I generally have really enjoyed my fieldwork experiences. And so it was somewhat enlightening for me to read Amelia's chapter about someone who's, you know, does fantastic work. I mean, Amelia does excellent scholarship, but to talk about how she personally does not really enjoy doing field research for a variety of reasons. And nonetheless, how she's able to kind of persevere and make it work for her in terms of how she sets up her living environment, the way she does work, et cetera. So that was enlightening for me. And I think that was important because I'm obviously training graduate students now and PhDs who are going to go do their own field research in the Middle East or elsewhere. And so that was a different perspective. I don't think I had thought about as much. So that was very helpful. As I mentioned previously, the identity stuff, which for me, I've noticed more and more in my own field research, but reading from others, you know, Christina Greer's great chapter about doing surveys um, on kind of, you know, black Americans, but also how this, you know, category is, you know, kind of encapsulating people from a lot of different backgrounds, whether the Caribbean or, you know, West Africa or whatnot, and what that means in terms of how people are categorized in surveys and how we can, of course, just take the way things are described on the page or in data uh, for granted. So I thought that was really interesting. And then I just thought there were a lot of great, you know, struggles that people had. Alessandro Orsini's uh, chapter where he embedded with uh, basically a fascist militia for a while, which is not something I've ever done. I don't think I would do, but how he thought through both the ethical ability to do that, but also the challenge of then publishing about that in an anonymous way, but then those people also trying to have control over what he published and how he said it. Those are honestly just things I hadn't considered before. I'd never you know, been in that exact environment. Although, as I said before, I do interview former militants and I do you know, talk to them about things and, you know, share the type of stuff I'm going to say, okay, you said this, I just want to double check this quote is accurate. But there were just a number of things and types of research that I hadn't done before, and some ethical dilemmas I hadn't faced before that I think I learned a lot about by reading some of our contributors. Yeah, I, there were certainly a couple of those chapters that I read. It's like, I don't, I don't know that I would ever be brave enough to try some of this stuff. But I would, I would love 
uh, to like get a job as a cab driver the way that uh, the way that Keith Trisco Darden does, where he like was like driving around Ukraine, interviewing people as they were sitting in his taxi uh, as a way of like convincing people that like, no, no, this isn't a setup. This is an actual I am just a researcher. I'm just interviewing you. You can trust me because I picked you up completely at random. There's no way I could know who you are. That's a great interview method. Um, I find driving in uh, most of the Middle East extraordinarily stressful. So I, like, I don't think I would try this in Beirut, but like maybe Amman if I was having like a particularly brave day. No, I do not think I would ever be brave enough uh, to try that. But there were certainly like some very creative research methods in here um, that I thought were just fantastic and that I, I wish I were. I wish I were like innovative or brave enough to, to try some of these. More generally, something else that I, I took away from this book was um, there are a number of, of contributors to this book who are people, you know, as, as we were saying at the very beginning of this interview, people whose work I've read for a really long time, who I really admire. But when all you've seen is the finished product, I think it can be very easy to think like, well, people who are really good at political science uh, have brilliant ideas, do flawless, frictionless field research, uh, and create amazing, amazing books uh, with with no bumps along the way. And if I am having things go wrong, it must be because I'm just not good at this. And reading about the challenges that people whose work I have admired for years <laughs> have faced, I actually, in a weird way, found very reassuring, right? Like, well, if Amani Jamal can get her entire research team out of jail if they've been arrested in Jordan, then possibly there is, you know, there is there is hope for for us mere mortals as well, right? That um, that if if these challenges are something that everybody experiences, that are part of the field research process in a very sort of like normal way, that this is something that everybody has to go through. Um, I think there's something very reassuring about that, and that's that's something that I took away from working on this book. That um, you know, there's always bumps. It's normal for things to go wrong. It's normal to have to like change your research process or to change your interview questions or to like realize that the, the thing you were interested in isn't actually feasible and that like, there's like a better question out there somewhere or even that, you know, something goes catastrophically wrong and you just have to like rearrange your entire project. That's something that happens to, to everybody. Um, and I, th- there's something about that that's like oddly reassuring. So I, I want to mention to listeners that I think regardless of how much experience or lack of experience you might have with fieldwork, there's certainly a lot that you're going to learn from this book. I mean, for me, at the most basic level, the book made me rethink uh, what we talk about when we talk about the field uh, and what exactly fieldwork means. Um, but I want to ask you to sort of a final question that has to do with the fact that, uh, you know, we're still in a pandemic. And Aura, you mentioned this previously. Some of our listeners and, you know, many of our students and our colleagues and maybe ourselves, you know, in this interview are grappling with how to do fieldwork during a pandemic. Uh, do you have any thoughts or maybe advice uh, on how one might adjust one's fieldwork in light of the pandemic? So I wish that I had better ideas around all of this. Um, Peter and I did put together a short piece 
uh, for for PS that was kind of like a collaborative article where we reached out both to people who'd contributed to the book, but also to a couple of graduate students who were in the middle of trying to figure out what to do about their research as a result of the pandemic uh, to try and see if like we could put our collective heads together and come up with some good ideas. And I think there were some very good ideas in that piece. So, you know, one insight that one of our graduate student contributors, I think it was Aidan Milliff, offered was the idea that like, you know, if you have to try and write a modular dissertation where you do what you can do um, for various sections, you like sort of do as much as you can do research wise for each individual part of the dissertation um, as a way of getting around the constraints of the pandemic. And so, you know, there are ways to be creative with um, the structuring of projects. I think there are ways to be creative in terms of doing research at a distance. Um, I've, you know, done, more Zoom interviews, I think, for um, sort of a side project that I'm working on that I'm usually able to because the people I'm interviewing for that project are mostly American citizens and located in the U.S. So some of the concerns about doing remote interviews um, don't apply in terms of like, you know, safety and security for interview participants. Um, But it's really hard. And I think maybe that's like one of the most important things we can do collectively as a discipline is just recognize that the normal rules don't apply right now, that things are really hard for graduate students, for junior scholars, for people who are thinking about, you know, writing their dissertation or getting tenure or, you know, finding their first job that um, all of us as a discipline, I think, need to recognize that, uh, you know, normal, uh, normal conditions have been suspended for the duration and that the more grace and compassion and support that we can extend to people who are trying to do research right now, the better off we're all going to be. So yeah, I thought that was really well said. Um, I, yeah, I would commend the PS article, COVID-19 and Fieldwork Challenges and Solutions, where we talk a lot about these issues. I would say, yeah, there were three themes that kind of came out of it. One, as Ora mentioned, this idea of contingency planning, which Will Reno talks about as you know the chair of the political science department at Northwestern. The idea that, look, in any given time, things don't go fully according to plan in field research, right? That's one of the themes of this book, but certainly amidst a pandemic, that's the case. And so planning a project whereby there's contingencies based on if this happens, I can go here, but if this happens, I can go there, that's good. Um, Aliyu Zakayo and Zoe Marks talk about okay, so one of the challenges is you can't travel as much or in a safe or ethical way. Okay, this is, you know, turn lemonade into lemons, lemons into lemonade. Um, Use this to build better connections with quote unquote field citizens or scholars that are in that country where you want to go, right? So this is something that should be done as a best practice, I think in general with field research, but especially now, you know, that can be done. If no one can travel, okay, then interact with and build with people who are in the area that you want to be able to, you know, learn about. And I think that that's a positive. And then Fotini Krishna talks about how, you know, quote unquote, cyberspace to some extent is also an aspect of the field, right? Now, for most of us, when we think about field research, we think about, you know, physical place a lot of the time and being somewhere to observe things, to talk to people. But, you know, again, you can access documents increasingly online through a variety of archives. You can potentially do Zoom interviews. Again, if you have that comfort with someone and you have, again, the ethical considerations about, you know, whether the interview is being recorded, all those types of things. But field research can happen over the web, even if you can't physically be there. So these aren't the best solutions, but they're kind of ones that can still allow you to do good work until hopefully, quote unquote, whenever we if ever go back to normal, quote unquote, um, you know, field research can resume, you know, not just maybe some of the good things happened before, but hopefully we can do better than the way things were before because the lessons we learned during this time period. 
Thank you for that. Um, well, Aura and Peter, we've taken up a lot of your time. Uh, so just one final question. Do you each mind uh, telling us what you're working on right now? Sure. I have just finished up the first draft of a book on the Syrian Civil War, which is under contract with Columbia University Press. Uh, and it is based on field research that I, in retrospect, timed extremely well um, during the it, conducted in 2018 and, and 2019 in um, Europe and the Middle East with uh, Syrians living abroad. And uh, we'll, we'll see what the final product looks like, but it's been um, a really interesting project to work on. Excellent. Congrats on the, uh, the contract there, Aura. Thanks, Peter. Uh, no problem. Um, yeah, I have a couple articles that I just wrapped up that will be coming out this year. One that looks at a really brutal practice called kin killing, whereby in Russia or elsewhere in Chechnya, uh, governments have used uh, either the threat or the actual use of violence against the family members of insurgents to kind of coerce them to stop fighting or not to mobilize. So uh, peace coming out on that. Um, also, another one looking at the impact of education on terrorism about people's definition of the term as well as their assessment of the threat. And if I have some good news, it's that actually I surveyed about 11 different universities around the country of students taking classes on terrorism. And I found that as compared to control groups, they were actually far less fearful of terrorism and I think had a much more sophisticated understanding of what the term meant and some of the challenges of defining it uh, as before. So some positive news. Um, the final thing I'll say is uh, the book I'm working on is called To Which Victor Go the Spoils? And it looks at kind of the aftermath of regime changes. So obviously we, we study a lot about when regimes fall, especially certainly in the Middle East with the Arab Spring. But I don't think we know as much about which group or individuals come to power in the aftermath. And so I created a big data set related to that. And I'm trying to do some field research related to it uh, in this coming year, but we'll see. Those sound like fascinating projects. And I hope that we can have you both back to speak about your uh, respective books. Um, well, uh, Oran, Peter, I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you both for being on the show today. Thank you so much for inviting us. This is a lot of fun. Yeah, it was an honor, Lemmys. Thanks for having us. The book is Stories from the Field, A Guide to Navigating Fieldwork in Political Science, co-edited by Peter Kraus and Ora Sekoli and published by Columbia University Press in 2020. Thank you for listening.